Hello, and welcome to another episode of Superconnected Conversations. Joe Berry is a British peace activist and founder of Building Bridges for Peace. Her story is one of the most extraordinary, beautiful stories I've ever come across on the internet. And when I came across it, I did what I've been doing since I was a kid and I wrote a letter. Thankfully, she replied to that letter uh, via Twitter, I think, and agreed to have this conversation. Most of Joe's work revolves around traveling to places in the world where there is conflict and talking to both sides sometimes to try and relax tension so that conversation can begin. And more than anything, empathy can begin. I really believe Jo carries quite a magical tool uh, on her journeys in her work and one that I can learn from and maybe you can too, I don't know. Um, have a listen to this conversation and see what you think. Hello, Joe. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for inviting me today. Oh no, thank you for for agreeing to have this chat. Um, it's it, it's been an interesting journey for me uh, deciding to do this second series because I didn't really have a plan for it, but I I did think quite enjoying talking to people I've not met before and connecting <laughs> online. Uh, it just it's actually just been really fun. So. When I when I I think I saw a friend of mine was uh, in a room that you were in in a clubhouse, mm. and um, and I just I just went to have to look to see what it is that you did, and and then that just led me through all these different you know your your wonderful TED talk, and and the the journey that you've been on uh, since 1984, I guess. Um, just for any listeners who aren't aware of your story, do you do you want to just talk a little about it? I know we could we could do an entire series on it, uh, but yeah. would you want to say just for anybody who's you know hearing about you for the first time? Yes, thank you. And let's just say I love Clubhouse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. It's wonderful, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'm addicted, but anyway. <laughs> And meeting people there every day, I love it. Worst things to be addicted to, I think. I think, especially in lockdown. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yes, yeah, so my story um, begins a long time ago, as you said, in 1984, um, when I was just 27. And my father was a conservative politician, and he was attending the annual conference in Brighton. And on the morning of October the 12th, a bomb went off in the hotel, which he was staying in along with my stepmother, um, and he was he was killed alongside four others and many, many injured. And it was the IRA who said they were responsible at the end of the day. Um, and most people probably don't, don't remember, but there was a time when the IRA was setting off bombs in London and, and all over England. And I never, ever thought my dad would be a target. I didn't live with any kind of fear or uncertainty I definitely felt I lived in peacetime and it was a terrible shock and um, you know I adored my dad and it wasn't just losing my dad it was 
losing the sense that I lived in peacetime because as soon as I heard my dad was dead, I felt I was part of a war. I was part of a violent, violent conflict. I couldn't go back to the person I had been, which was very much kind of free spirit, there to live life and have fun. And now I feel the, the burden, the responsibility of living in a conflict. And so two days later, I made a decision I'm going to find a way of bringing something positive out of this. Mm. I'm going to understand those who kill my dad because I don't want an enemy. And at that moment, I did. Mm. And the journey started to bring something positive out of it. And back in 1984, I did not have a clue how to do this. Uh, I didn't even know how to cope with the feelings that I had. But there was this determination in me um, that has just got stronger and stronger. And it's shaped my whole life. I have a peace charity, Building Bridges for Peace. And 20 years ago, I decided to meet the man who'd planted the bomb, which killed my dad. And his name was Patrick McGee. And he came come out of prison through the peace process. And I went to meet him on my own in a house in Dublin. And that first meeting lasted three hours and led to a whole new journey. And we've become friends. It took years to say that, but we have become friends. We've shared platforms around the world. And I have been transformed through building a bridge with him. I never met him to change him. It was to to heal um, something inside myself. Mm. So that's that's the short story. That's the nutshell of 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 something that is is so huge and and so when I finally got to the end of your TED talk, I, it was a little bit like the first time I watched the um, the film about Gandhi, uh, which you probably remember. I think it might have been nineteen eighty four as well. So around that time, anyway, um, about the idea of. Um, not fighting kind with kind, actually offering uh, a mm -hmm. different reaction to um, some an, an aggressive energy. And I, I just, uh, that's, first of all, just why I wanted to talk to you, because these episodes that I've been doing are about how we connect. And I think there's no, no more powerful um, example than you going straight to somebody that I think most of us would feel we would never want to see, or if we did, we would want to punish them. And, um, and you've done the opposite. What you've, what you've done is got to the root of why they did what they did and, um, and found empathy. I think yeah. it, it's a, such an incredible um, human quality and um and i wonder how how you would have dealt with that now um because i just think in 1984 you, you there, there was a lot less distractions to find that energy inside yourself than than now i think there's an awful lot of distraction everywhere mm -hmm. um it's a really valuable piece of human treasure that you've carried <laughs> from that time and and about the journey that you've made since, um, what's what's the most challenging part of it for you? Because obviously the bridge of peace that you've talked about is 
you know, like Gandhi used to talk about um, in the 40s, that the idea of um, maintaining your dignity and, and showing people that they are wrong, not by telling them that they're wrong, but just by trying to understand what, why they're doing things that are wrong. What's the what's the what's the moment in in this journey for you that you've that's been the hardest? Oh wow! Uh, well, thank you for understanding what I've done. Really yeah. resonates with me. Mm. Well, you, I mean, you're right. There's there's always a choice to go for blame and revenge, and that I think is in all of us as human beings. We're programmed when we're hurt. You go, well, whose fault is it? You know. Who can I make wrong to make myself feel better? And there might be a short-term kind of relief in that, but I think it keeps us actually in a, in, a, in a position of being in pain. And I didn't want to be a victim. I didn't want to, I didn't, I didn't want to go for revenge. Mm. Um, so how do we choose to not blame? And that, you know, that's been a, a life's work and it's something that I still grapple in myself. If people think of me, oh, Joe, you know, you're so amazing. You must never want to blame anyone anymore. And it's not true. <laughs> no. there, are, there are times when all I want to do is hurt someone else, you know, and, and occasionally I do. Mm. And then I have to repair the harm. So the work on myself never changes. And I think the hardest bit always is when I want to hurt someone else that to stop that response and and choose a, a way of curiosity and, and empathy um, or sometimes I like to make myself wrong you know I can be really hard on myself and how do I change that impulse so there's lots of outer things that have happened like massive outer challenges but it actually comes back to the internal impulse of how do I heal myself how do I change those impulses so that I don't make myself wrong and someone else right i don't beat myself up don't blame myself you know how can i forgive myself and give myself that empathy and compassion or when i'm feeling like i want to I have three adult daughters and if anyone ever hurts them am i you know it is so much there that that need to punish someone mm. that response you know that's all emotionally hard work so when people come to me and they say I couldn't do what you do, you know, I'd go for revenge. You know, I, I go, I get, I really get it. You know, like that, that's how we all are. And it's how can we change that? That's what really interests me is how can we change that? Because at the moment, there is so much polarization going on. People are, have this righteousness, whether they take a position about all sorts of things, even within families, families are split mm. because of different views, even about, whether take the vaccine or not, let alone Brexit or I mean, there's massive reasons why people feel at the moment really, really right. It's um, rupture everywhere in our society, isn't it? Yeah, and it's almost like it's now seen as something that like it's okay to do. And I mean, I'm I'm always asked to I do lots of restorative work in mediation, and there's always issues, and people go, "Well, do you understand the issues?" I go, "I don't care about the issues. What I'm going to do." is help you to have a conversation so you listen to people who have the different perspective mm. whether it's family or friends or, or colleagues I, i'm actually not interested in the issue because that's not what 
to me, it's not what's important. It's mm. how can we listen when we have differences, mm. and how can we get curious to go? Okay, so, so you think you think that? You know, tell me more. You know how? I'm sure there are really good reasons why you are thinking what you're thinking, even though it's different to me. Yeah. Will, will you tell me? It's interesting. Um, I've only just realised listening to you that um, I'd say most of the guests that I've been having conversations with uh, have all got that sense of um, uh, both challenging and supporting uh, different narratives, you know, and not... I, I spoke to a neuroscientist last night um, from Calcutta and uh, and he oh. was he was felt very strongly that duality is has sort of risen to a, a very unhealthy level and that actually you know we're not binary it's not wrong or, or right and it's not you know one thing or the other which, which mm. i think you, you you sort of um indicated there when you were talking about duality uh you must come up up against that uh, you know a, a lot especially in terms of peace work mm. Well, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And I think the root of conflict is about being able to justify that we're right so much that we're prepared to hurt other people. Mm. And I'm interested in how can we stop demonising people? Mm. You know, how can we challenge hatred? And you mentioned the word dignity. To me, that's really important. So, example, if I'd gone into my first meeting with Patrick, and yelled at him and and argued with him about history and and told him that he was wrong and and, and blamed him then i would have actually taken his dignity away he would have felt that and he mm. he would not have changed he would have become more cemented more fixed in his sense of we were right we were the oppressed your yeah. dad had the power they abused the power which was his position, you know, he would have stayed there and I would have had one meeting, I would have left and, you know, that would have been bad. And that's not a, that would have been okay, but I I wanted, I wanted to see him as a human being. And that did mean about allowing his dignity, not taking it away. And he said to me, and I think it's probably in my TED talk, though I haven't listened to it since the moment I did it, but I think I said that, in that first meeting, he, he there was a point where he would he said he was disarmed by my empathy, mm. and if I'd gone in there raging and arguing, he wouldn't have changed. Yeah, and, and that is me what it's about, really. It's a full, it's a kind a kind of magic in a way. It's a sort of magical mm. thing that you did in in the way that you reminded him of of his own dignity, mm. uh, which I'm, I'm I imagine I'm guessing here, but that he would have noted his own dignity and then see seeing how that doesn't quite square with the actions that he made mm. uh, and that's a really i think it, <laughs> it's a it's a really magical thing to be able to let people come um awaken other people to make their own realization rather than trying to impose you know whatever ethics that we feel uh we we, we should be um changing the world with and you know it's uh, i mean I, i've done a lot of work as an activist if in different ways mm. and i remember, i spoke to peter tatchell the other day it's been a, a, an incredible human rights campaign yeah. for many years and 
And he said something about that dignity and always being polite. And even though there's uh, some hard and unpleasant fights that he's been in the middle middle of for decades, uh, he's always polite, even to the people that he's protesting against. And there's this, and that's that's the part that I guess um, that shocked me about social media and the way there's a huge lack of empathy and um there's a writer called sherry turkle who who uh, whose book i read and and she she talks about the lack of empathy on the internet with people that don't know each other but are uh, you know always communicating with each other mm-hmm. and that we don't and that there isn't an app for it we are the empathy app and it's where there's a large number of us have forgotten that uh, i'm doing my best to remember it um as much as possible it's hard uh, but that that's the that's the key isn't it of what you do yeah yeah it, it is about yeah empathy and to me that's the way that we can actually change the world and people don't change because we tell them they have to mm-hmm. we can't force people to change people change because they feel it inside themselves mm. so patrick chose that day to look at the fact that actually he killed wonderful human beings and before that he just saw them as legitimate target he'd he'd lost some of his humanity by using violence choosing to use violence and therefore he didn't see them and then now he's beginning to see my dad as a real human being and it's really made me see that people change not when we do things to them but with them and with them is about dignity and and empathy and when people feel really really heard they're more likely to want to then to change. So listening to me is a huge part of it. Like, and at the moment, I'm doing a lot of listening, um, obviously virtual because we're still in lockdown. But there's a lot of people who just need to be heard and acknowledged and, and seen. And mm. I think that is part of, of empathy is that listening where we're not going to fix them, rescue them, therapize them, you know, just give them our total attention. And that, I think, is is a gift we can all give each other. Mm. Yeah, it's healing, isn't it? Um, mm. Actually, I think it's part of, uh, probably part of therapists' kind of main thing, is just to listen. Mm. Um, and I, I think it's ordinary to come away from a therapy session mm. uh, just being having been heard and feeling some healing <laughs> after that, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, I, I see as well that with your relationship with Patrick, that I mean, you didn't force him, but through your um, patience and, and hearing him and speaking, he would have very quickly have started to see your dad as, you know, mm-hmm. a, as a dad, someone's father, instead of, you know, mm-hmm. the collectivizing of, of, of that happens in war. Um, where we think of other people as an enemy um, when we're not. I mean, the the the, the real way of, of of connecting is always about putting the other person's uh, interests or or needs um, as a as front and center of what why you're communicating with them. It's easy to forget, but I, I've I've noticed it a lot th- uh, this year. It's um, it's. It's it's an amazing thing when you realise that you're what you're doing in your life 
um, can work much better when you're just uh, allowing other people to guide it, even though you want to be in control. (laughs) Yeah, we all want to be in control in a way, don't we? But actually, the greatest surprises come from just sort of, like you say, just sitting back and and listening to Mm -hmm. someone. Why why do you think, I mean, uh, I was too young to to know in the 80s, really, but um, uh, just one of the things I like to ask guests on, on in this uh, conversation uh, is about the change in technology and the way that connects us. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously you're a, a, a young woman in the 80s. Um, what, what's that like to you when you look at your journey and see how it's all communication, isn't it, what you've been doing? Your yeah. journey? Um, it would have been, I think, so much easier in many ways because I could have Googled how to bring something positive out of a tragedy Mm. and i would have found so many things you know because like there wasn't there was no one around at that time hardly who i could meet and i did find a few Mm. um and i could have connected with other people who felt like i felt i've been very very alone not now obviously but there were many many decades very alone with what i was carrying and what i wanted to do um and i mean but having said that, I'll give you an example. People had other ways to do things. I went to Belfast in um, 85, 86. And at that time, you know, it was a war zone. Um, it was so different to London, peacetime in London. There were British tanks everywhere, British soldiers stopping us at checkpoints, checking bags as you go into shops, um, mm-hmm. all streets that were being bombed. Um, but I went to... I gave my first talk when I was 20, 27 and there were like 800 people there and um, it wasn't that long. And I think I talked a lot about forgiveness then, which actually I don't like to talk about forgiveness so much now. And someone said that they wanted to um, send out what I'd said. So I wrote a few lines down and, and um, must have sent it as a, a letter to her. And then she photocopied it. And she sent it out probably to about a thousand people all around Northern Ireland. And physically. Yeah. She just sent out to prisons to, you know, she just was like, people have to know this. And then I got some letters back and some of them was from someone in prison who was part of the INLA, INLA, which is like a breakaway group of the IRA. And Mm. I still got those letters, you know, so obviously People found ways to communicate, but but like she was just so dedicated to getting my message out. Um, these days you just send emails or you put it on social media. Um, and I still, I did a documentary in 86, went out on BBC, it was a tiny thing. And I, I got death threats even then, but the death oh. threats were letters that arrived. Were like, oh. I know where you were, you know, you don't deserve to live after what you said. So even back then, you know, people still had a way of sending hateful messages. But obviously, um, with social media, I've had a lot, a lot more since then. So really, think, you still have that? You still have death threats? Um, trying to do the last one. Um, yeah, I've, I've had all sorts on, on social media. Um, I did a, a live thing, and I'm not going to remember the name, but it was some for an, an American... Um, Oh, I know, it was on Reddit. And um, I couldn't believe 
um, it was like, ask me anything on Reddit. I couldn't believe the messages I got from there. I mean, they were what in sort America. of thing? I mean, against you for for yeah. what reason? Oh yeah, 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 no, you don't deserve to live. You know, you you deserve to be killed and um, because... all sorts. Because because I've become friends with the man who killed my dad. Oh, so, yeah. So there's a um, sense that you've betrayed a sign. I've betrayed my father, my community. I've also been told I've got Stockholm, Stockholm syndrome, all sorts, Stockholm syndrome. I call oh. it Oslo syndrome. I mean, what the hell? It's nothing. You know, yeah. it's people try to put me in a box and label me. And mm. maybe it's threatening, maybe, maybe it's challenging, and it says more about them than me. And yeah. there's no opportunity to engage in a proper conversation yeah, the, about it. The, the challenge that your work uh, represents is is a, an idea that uh, there are no sides mm. to take that's that's ultimately at the heart of um your work to try to connect yeah. and create a bridge is that there there are no sides there yeah. is i'm on this side and you're on that side uh, which again i just it, it it takes me back to gandhi who who stood up to the you know the um british empire with a we're going to get through this and gain independence and remain friends and um, some of the things he he achieved and some some not but uh, but but i think whether it's um possible to to ha to win those goals uh, of bringing everyone together or not that absolutely has to be the default position for us as human beings isn't it to try for yeah. that and I, I like to show what sort of what, what is possible um and you know that is very threatening to people and i do understand that and, and if i meet someone in, in real life who wants to engage and who is taking a different position i've got all the time to speak and to listen you know mm. and, and because I really understand that people find that very, very threatening, especially people who are going through trauma, you know, and pain. I mean, like, it's, cool. it's very hard at times like that. So I really understand it. But what I'm wondering is, you know, could, could we in the future model this in terms of how we do our politics? Just imagine how different it would be. Mm. It's like empathy and compassion was absolutely at the centre of, mm. in the heart of how we make our decisions you know, regarding all people. And then if countries could have that empathy towards other countries, it, we would have a very different world. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it, you know, however impossible it sometimes looks, I just I just really believe in what you're saying and believe yeah. that I, I, I've come from, a, a, I suppose, a theatrical background in, with my family. So there's, and I, I'm lucky in that there's a beginning, starting point in life where, you're with loads of different people from different backgrounds, different religions, different, you know, colour, creed, whatever. And uh, and so it's normal to me. So it's only in, in adulthood that I, I begin to understand, oh, I've I've grown up in some sort of fantasy utopia. Was that a bit of a shock? <laughs> some of it has been shocking. And and and, mm -hmm. and yeah, I think getting older because it becomes more shocking because I'm feeling I'm feeling the need to connect a lot more to the time of, of being younger because of that, I think, because I see, um, well, we see more anyway of the world now and all over the world. And and there are great sides of uh, being able to do that. And and then some not so great sides, which is being aware of just how much um, we are all polarized. Yeah. But, um, but it's that sort of work that, that you do. I mean, can you, I'd love to hear 
what you count among the most I don't know. I wouldn't, let's not be binary in terms of successes and 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 failures, but it, where you really felt you made an impact. Uh, mm. What you do is there a, 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 a sort of I don't know. Um, I'm a musician, so which, which is your best song? <laughs> oh. Your best release. Wow, that's a big question. Um, the one that you thought that's. That that well, sort of did what I wanted it to do. Yeah, I mean, so, like, I mean, there's loads and there's some international stuff, but I, I'm actually going to go back to um, a group of young women I was working with before lockdown in mm. Tower Hamlets, and it was a school which was 100% girls from Asian backgrounds, maybe some Somalia, or or practicing Muslims, and um, when I arrived, um, some of them. Well, they'd all they'd all already experienced racism. They had verbally attacked, emotionally attacked, and some of them were understandably quite angry. And I listened to them. I listened to them a lot and acknowledged them and validated them. And each week I went in, they they had more to share about what they'd been through. And then they decided they want to do um, a project. To create change in the world and I supported them in that and and at the end some of them said to me things like I now know that my anger can be used to create change in the world and I don't think it would have been if I hadn't met you and the one that really really touched me was when she said I've never been listened to before by um, a white person who's older than me who's not just listened to me but sees me and knows that I have something to say. And I think that that meant a lot to me because every time I work with young people and, and it's all, you know, it's white young people as well. I, I always say to them, you have a really hard time and you all have a voice and mm. you can all make a difference in the world. And I see you all as positive change makers. And I recognise that, especially now during lockdown, but even before, you know, it is hard being a young person with the world that you've inherited. But the fact that this, especially this one young woman who, I mean, it's, it's tragic that she hadn't felt she'd heard by a white person before, you know, and, and that really, really touched me. And, and it saw like, my, so my story, I don't need to share my story anymore, but there's a reason I share it. And it gives me credibility of young people and it and through through telling the story, they get the message mm. that I see them, that I'm interested in them, that I care, mm. and they feel they they somehow feel heard within the, my story, and that's you know that's that's a gift, and it's a gift every time you know any any young people stay behind and share their story with me or write to me, and you know that's to me that's just as important as going to different parts of the world. I was in India um, last year speaking, which was an amazing experience going back there because I was there before my dad had been killed. And, you know, some international work, yes, it's amazing. I love it. But actually, I want to just go back to what's happening right now in, in our country. And, yes. you know, it's tiny grassroots stuff. You know, it's not going to get me awards or rich or, or anything, but it's, but it's that 
I just feel so important. So that makes sense. Like those conversations, I know she's, they're never going to forget me and I'm never going to forget them either. It's two way for sure. Mm. Oh gosh. They'll, they'll, um, I, I mean, that's, that's the connection that, that lasts, isn't it? And I'm, I'm sure you wouldn't be surprised if you heard from her at uh, any time. And, um, uh, it's a really what, what a beautiful story. Um, and again, comes back to being heard, uh, connecting and, and communication isn't just about broadcast. <laughs> uh, he says in the middle of a broadcast, but you know, um, it is, it is the listening, the art of, of, of hearing um, and also hearing what someone who lives and experiences life completely differently to the way we do. Yeah. And I also always say, you know, it's not okay that you experience this racism. You know, I call it out. Like I, re I really do call it out. We need, we need to. Um, and I think that's the other part of it that, you know, I, I, like I'm not going to demonise those that do it. We all have our stories. Last year, um, one of my daughters was, um, she walked to the Black Lives Matter march in London. I've got three daughters who all seem to be activists. I don't know why, but they seem to be. <laughs> I, well, I can't oh, imagine. Well, um, so, and then she was um, in, in the park and she, she looked up and there was a, a group of white guys, very drunk, coming towards her in an aggressive way. And they, they were part of the far right, some, I don't know what their name is, some mm. football group. And they were going around spitting at girls in the park and behaving in ways which wasn't very decent. Mm. And then following these white guys, following, chasing, like coming to her were the police. So she was safe. They, they please stop them. And I mean, the anger I felt for, up towards those men, I was like, what, sure. what makes it think, how do you think it's okay to go and spit and, and be abusive to girls sitting in the park and then I thought well they've got their stories as well you know they've oh, it's not it was alcohol induced it doesn't excuse it at all but they have mm. their stories what what makes them get up and feel it's okay to shout at other people and who they see as their enemy and and so how can we hear those stories and um, so it just makes me think that you know, everybody has their story. It's never okay to be abusive or, or racist or judgmental. But if we can find a way to hear people's stories, then can we bring together communities who've mm -hmm. been hurt by each other or seemingly hurt? I don't know. I'm just sort of interested in how do we heal the, you know, the conflicts and the rifts that we have in the mm -hmm. UK at the moment? Something about it, about conflict, and uh, uh, it, it, it strikes me that, it's our inability to uh, action change or, or our fear. Fear. Um, mm. Because, it, you know, for... Um, I, I have been listening on Clubhouse, actually, to a lot of the uh, trans rights groups. Oh, yeah. Who are actually, as, as a community, um, uh, re I think mostly feel unheard. Yes, you were saying just that no one's listening, and then I try to imagine uh, who are the people who they feel are not listening. Well, for a, sort of people who are fearful of their lives changing or the life that they know, the life that they've worked out how to manage finally, and then um, you know something new happens, and 
And I, it, I, and it's, there's a simpler version of that, isn't there? I, I, I think we all do it when, when there's something in our own lives, anything, tiny little thing. Mm. And we're like, I, I have it all the time. And I'm like, oh, I, don't, I don't want to do that. It's not my... And then I'm trying now these days always to go, just do it, just try it. And, and invariably, whatever it is, um, it might be just phoning somebody. I'd said I'd call and I'm like, I don't, I'll, I'll say I've got a cold or something. <laughs> but just pushing yourself into something that you imagine is uncomfortable. Out of your comfort zone, you're talking about. Right? Yeah. And part of me thinks that uh, <laughs> part, part, partial roots of conflict um, going on and on and, and there being new conflicts all the time in communities uh, is that fear just to go, oh, okay, let's do it. Um, and I think it was the same, certainly with the LGBT community um, in the 60s and the 70s, when when that really started to become um, militant, you know, like, mm. that we have rights too. Uh, and there were some people who fought against it and some people who went, oh, all right, if you must. And then, and, and slowly, you know, we evolve into this acceptance. But it is the, it is the uh, ability to change, in my experience anyway, just to... Uh, um, but we, we just when, when when you were talking about those guys that what what why would they do that why would they yeah. attack a woman for a start but um, mm-hmm. um, but but it, it it is the the fear of change and I'm wondering if if there's something in in education maybe that um, we can make change the 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 hipper thing mm-hmm. not trying to keep things the way they are <laughs> oh. yeah, right. I think if we had a lot more empathy capacity teaching in schools, um, that could be reuseful. I mean, at the moment, there's a, there's a lot of conflict in Northern Ireland. And um, I was listening, listening to LBC radios. I couldn't get Clubhouse because I was driving home, so I had to go back to LBC. Um, and someone rang up and just said that the truth, which is so, is so true, Protestants and Catholics are still divided in schools. Mm. You know, and then there's the expectation that everyone's going to get on. But actually, from that early age, they're, they're separated still. There's very integrated school. And, um, but then, you know, look at schools here and what, you know, priorities reading and writing, which, you know, I understand mm. is important. But actually, I would rate emotional intelligence, which is about being able to be em- empathetic. It's about knowing what to do with our anger. You know, if we taught children, or because adults don't know how to do it, you know, how can we feel anger, which is a fantastic emotion, because it it's it's there, it's an agency for us to change, but how can we express our anger without hurting anyone? You know, if we learned, if that was a big part of our school education. My God, it would be amazing. You know, and how how to be curious when we're feeling ourselves shrinking. And, and maybe it's because of fear, how to then, you know, be able to let that go and go, okay, I'm feeling scared right now. There's the self-awareness. And there's all sorts of amazing programs in schools at the moment, which are helping mm. with mindfulness and people going in and teaching empathy to five-year-olds. I personally think that children are naturally able to be, to empathize. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm not a, a scientist. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm purely doing it from my own experience of my own children, actually. They have a massive capacity to think about others from a very, very young age. It's learnt, isn't it? A lack of empathy. So we probably start oh, off right. with 
plenty of it, don't we? That's what I think. And then live, because people say teenagers are, aren't able to, and I'm like, not the ones that I've been around, you know. So mm. I, I, I don't know. Anyway, if schools was a place where people could learn about self-care and self-compassion and all the emotional intelligence, how to resolve conflict, some schools are becoming restorative, which is another way, I think, of what we're talking about. And so rather than with conflict, use punishment or rewards is far more about bringing people together and understanding and building support. Yeah. So there's, there's lots of amazing work going on. It's just that it's not, there's not enough of it yet. Mm. And um, it's, it's so hopeful uh, hearing you uh, talking about all of this, the, the great things that are going on in the midst of a world where it's very easy to talk about all the not so good things that are going on. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel in, um, I, I, I don't, I never centre any of these conversations around the pandemic because it's just that's what everyone's always talking about. But it's a really interesting uh, year that we've had in terms of the subjects that you're talking about and that you work with. Um, how's that changed? Apart from obviously going online and doing a lot of talking on screens like this. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I am concerned about... So young people is the area I focus on. I, I'm concerned about their mental health, that there could be an epidemic of, of young people feeling, and quite young, maybe even children, you know, feeling worried, anxious, uncertain. Um, they've got their stories. Even six-year-olds have their stories. You know, I've even just seen how two-year-olds, you know, haven't not having the social interaction they would have. The effect mm. of that, they then go back into being with other children and then you know take five six-year-olds who might be scared who's going to die or all sorts mm -hmm. missing their friends their support systems for 10 12 year olds gone not be able to do the things that would normally make them feel better exercise i mean just just goes on and on let, let alone dealing with bereavement mm -hmm. um so the possibility from that is that schools and there are some they're recognizing that yes academic work is important but inside the schools we need far more listening mm. we need a safety net we, we need to really understand what people are going through and 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 i and i've spoken in schools where they have that there they have that in place they understand even more the need for mental health support yes what worries me is i'm getting messages from people saying my friend's daughter's going through this you know do you know someone who can help her and and i and i think the the resources are very limited mm especially for children to get help. So that that worries me. But on the other side, people understand now how important it is to care and to share. And I, I sense we're not going back to people not sharing and not caring like maybe they did before. And people understand also that lives can change in a second. You know, mm. there is no certainty. So maybe that will help people. You mentioned at the beginning about like comfort zone you know it might people to be a bit bolder okay you know i don't know i'm gonna make my life really important and actually what is important is making sure that i make a difference in the world and i think that's the other mm -hmm. side of it you know out of pain and trauma can come people recognizing their pain can be used to create change in the world and that i think is going to be a much more driving force for people 
because everything else can just go away. You know, yeah. there is no security anymore because we know the world can just change. And mm. I think it's always been true, but now people people know it in every you know every cell in their body. There's that uncertainty. Mm. I love that that the, what you say uh, that the pain and trauma can be transformed into something that makes the world a better place that's it's the ultimate alchemy in a way isn't exactly. it exactly yeah but we do need support to do it but you're right that is the ultimate alchemy yeah mm. no it's it's a <laughs> um, it's magical work that you're doing and sharing and um is there anything else that you'd like to add uh, that you know that you that you haven't said that you wanted to Oh, Tim, I'm always like, afterwards, I always go, oh, I didn't say that at the time. I'm like, okay. Well, I suppose let's just end it with um, one thing that we can all do when we're having a hard time, and there might be people hearing this, is to hmm. really know that we're all doing our best. You know, these are hard times. And to be kind, be kind to ourselves. I think it does start with that. And if if you know if i'd known about being kind to myself in my 20s or my teens i would have had a very different life because <laughs> i didn't know that <laughs> you know it wasn't something my Ooh. mother modeled because she didn't know it and no one talked about it that you could actually give yourself support you know or and you mm. can be kind to yourself like that wasn't something that mm. i knew and now i just know that's so so important and and self parent yourself yes mm. So let's end everyone giving themselves a little bit of love and going, you know what, we're all doing really well at these difficult times and everything we're feeling is completely understandable. That's a lovely way to end it. Thank you so much for your time and, and wisdom and really inspiring alchemy, let's call it for what it is. Joe Berry, thank you for joining Super Connected Conversations. <laughs> oh, thank you, Tim. I've loved it. <laughs>